Yeah, okay. I always forget the kids. I'm sorry, kids. Kids, get out of here. We love you. We'll pray for you as you go down. So I wanted to ask, um, did you guys have moments this week where um, you recognized that you were having a thought and you said, wait a minute, that's one of those, did God really say moments? Did you guys have that this week? Did you kind of think like, wait, I know God said this, but this thought came into mind? Did you guys, did you guys have any of those moments? Yeah? Okay. Just want to make sure we're awake here. Did any of you guys kind of write down? Uh, some of the things, one of the things I asked is like very easy to do. Just keep track for a day. Keep track for a week. The number of times when you believe things, you think things, half-truths come into your mind. Did anybody keep track of that this week? I'm, keep, I'm holding you all accountable to this. All right. Do it this week. Love you guys. Do it this week. This is important. Because if we can't recognize who the enemy is, we're not going to be able to fight these battles well. So take some time. When you hear things like that, half-truths, um, kind of, did God really say that we should do this? Take the time and just kind of think about it. It's worth that. It's worth that for your transformation in Christ. So we're in this series called The Great Cover-Up. And everything that we're talking about in this series are ways in which Satan kind of masks the people of God. We know that Jesus came, he died on the cross, and he removed that mask. And yet, even as Christ says we live in freedom, Satan's just constantly trying to throw things to put the mask back on over and over, different ways. <clears throat> and so as I was praying about this series, last week we were just kind of talking about that first time that Satan showed up and kind of he was like, this is the way that I do things, right? Now, this week, and as I was praying about this series, the Lord um, actually gave me kind of an outline for this, but we're actually going to talk about the church, the way that he puts the mask up for the church. And so for me, and maybe this is true for you guys, I've had um, just a bunch of church experience, right? I'm sure that, um, how many of you have been a part of like Emmanuel Life point. it was your first church experience, and this is the only place that you've ever been your entire life. I don't know if you guys are telling the truth or not, because no one ever raises their hand. <laughs> but I'm, I'm guessing that we've been to multiple churches before, right? We have different experiences. When we walk in this door, we have already been informed by a previous experience about what church should be, what it looks like, what we've experienced. Is that true? Okay. Yes, we got one up. <laughs> getting, it, getting it loosened up, Bill. I have had church experiences as well. I can relate. I just wanted to let you guys know. I've had multiple church experiences, and I've had bad church experiences. I've had hurt in church. I had hurt that informed me for a very long time about how I proceeded out into different activities in my new church. And I was promptly convicted by God that that's not okay. Some of you were at the night of worship and prayer. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, see? Got another hand. If you were there, right? Yeah. All right. Perfect. Um, and some of you guys remember back in February, there was we had like a, I gave a message. We did a time of deliverance and prayer. And um, there, was, there was a specific thing that um, wasn't planned, but the Holy Spirit really uh, impressed, upon my, impressed upon my heart to pray a, a certain prayer. And, and what it said was, um, it was, it was a declaration that as a church family, we would no longer follow a counterfeit vision, but we would not veer to the right or the left, but we would follow the Lord and allow him to lead this body. I don't know if you guys remember that. That was impactful for me because I was up here praying and the Holy Spirit said, you need to pray this prayer. I was like, okay, sure, I'll do it. And then on March 6th, we had our night of worship and prayer and, uh, I don't know if any of you know Pastor Tom Herbert, uh, but he came with his freedom group. Yeah, he came with the freedom group to be a part of this. And he said, um, he said this um, to, the, to the oversight team of this church, which is the sabbatical team right now. Continue to follow the straight arrow. You are on the right path. Do not veer to the right or the left, but continue on the path the Lord has taken you on. We have two prophetic words in less than a month saying, stay the path. Don't veer from the right or the left. Cast off the counterfeit and go straight. I am convinced um, through prophetic word, through reading the word of God, through prayer, through being a part of the community and being part of, of this fellowship, that there are principalities and powers in this world that want you to believe that the church exists for reasons that God never intended. Can I get an Amen. Because if you had a bad church experience, God never intended that to happen. So you have to say amen. I think we've all been there. We're going to take a look this morning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. We're going to be making our way through the Bible. It's all going to be on the screen. Okay, so follow on the screen. But um, we're going to be kind of taking, taking a little ride through um, New Testament, Old Testament. And we're just going to be seeing... Um, specific churches. The first one we're going to look at is the church in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them. And, and if you read chapter 1 of this, he actually, uh, like within the first five, first five verses of the letter, he is exhorting them for doing a specific thing. And he continues in chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. You were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So what's... What's Paul saying here? First of all, there's a church in, in Corinth, and he's saying, I can't address you as spiritual people. He's saying, you know Christ, you've given your life over to him, and yet I have to address you as somebody who is still living in the flesh, and that's a problem. He's saying, I'm still, have to give, I'm still having to give you milk when I should be able to give you big chunks of meat. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about like when you're, you know, a baby, you know, your mom gives you milk, you get formula, and then you get older, 
and you go to like Texas Roadhouse and you're just tearing up like a 20-ounce ribeye. You know what I mean? Paul's saying, you should be able to tear up that 20-ounce ribeye by now. I was thinking of you, Tim. I was like, if I went and ate with Tim, I bet me and you could just tear up some steak, couldn't we? (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. And he's saying, but you're still drinking formula. You're like, you should, you're spiritual people. You know Christ. You've been in the faith long enough, and yet you're still taking formula. He says, among you, there is jealousy and strife. Earlier in the chapter, in, in, in the book, he says they were quarreling among themselves. And what they were quarreling about is some of them had met Paul, and Paul witnessed to them. And some of them had met Apollos, and he witnessed to them. And they began to fight and have division among them about whose way they should follow more. Well, we're going to follow the way of Apollos. He said this. If you read in the book of Acts, when Apollos went places, he only knew how to baptize people the way that John did. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit until another Christian, another one of the apostles came along and said, hey, there's more to this than just this natural, this this baptism in water. There's a baptism from the Holy Spirit that you need to know about. And some of them met Paul. And Paul, I mean, we know Paul, his encounter, oh my goodness, I can only imagine. If he came and told me about that, I'd be like, I'm a believer, amen. I believe. I believe. But he says, in this, are you not merely being human? You're fighting about things that don't matter. And this is my first point. In the church, I believe that Satan is trying to get us, is trying to get our attention through petty distractions. Because Paul is bringing this strong exhortation here. Listen, Paul is saying, if you're a new convert, you should be taking on formula. That's, that's good. That's what should be happening. I need to give you a little bit at a time. A little bit here, a little bit here. But if you're not, what's wrong? Like, if Paul comes to you and is exhorting you, like, you also need to be fearful in the same way. Because that dude is full of the Holy Spirit. So if he's saying to you, why aren't you taking all that God wants for you? Why are we still feeding you this? We've got to pay attention to that. And the thing that I think bothered Paul the most is that they were acting like unbelievers, even though they possessed the Holy Spirit. They were ignoring the Holy Spirit. They were quenching the Holy Spirit. They were, they were grieving the Holy Spirit. And he knew it. Among them, they had disagreement, contention, They actually had like a zeal, a zeal to follow after Paul, Peter, Apollos, more than they had a zeal to follow after Christ. Their passion to follow after man was greater than their passion to follow after Christ. And Paul's like, stop. Aren't you just merely being human? Isn't this what humans do? You're spiritual people. Isn't this what mere humans do? People of the flesh, people who haven't met Christ, who don't know Christ? So how does this, how does this connect with like modern day church? How does this connect with 1010, maybe the church in America? I think I think one of the ways that this this is is kind of mirrored is is in how we how we kind of we've been discipled by people at times, right? Somebody came into our life, told us about Jesus. They said, "This is the way that I do it," 
And then somebody else comes along and says, this is the way that I do it. And we're like, oh, no, you're wrong. No, um, this guy, he said, this is exactly how we do it. This is how we do it. You're wrong. Petty distraction. Another way right now, I mean, like, you have so many resources online, right? Right now, today, you didn't really have to come be a part of this fellowship if you didn't want to. Although, we should be doing this. It is a command. But you could go online and you could watch thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons from pastors out there. And when you have conversations, like Zach and I this week were having a conversation because me and him, we really enjoy Matt Chandler. We're like, oh, man, Chandler said this. Yeah, Chandler said that. But you know what? I also like a little bit about what Bill Johnson says sometimes. And I like a little bit about what Ravi Zacharias says. And there's all these famous pastors, and we're like, we're followers of them people. We believe their doctrine. That's the way it should be. That's the way every single church looks. We need to set it up like their church. They're being prosperous. They're having success. They're doing it right. And if it looks different than that, there's a problem. Ah, they're like petty distraction. There's a problem with our church. I need to go have a chat with the pastor. I need to go tell him everything that's wrong because Chandler said this. Because Bill Johnson said that. Ravi Zacharias said we need to be apologists. We're not doing that enough. I mean, those, th- those people are there. They are, your, they are resources. I have learned so much through those resources, and yet, that is not the point. That is not the point of the church. And one of the things I appreciate the most, and I'll just say, like I said, I'm a, I'm a Matt Chandler fan, and the first thing he says before every single resource, this is not supposed to replace your local congregation. This is a resource to supplement your walk in faith. So in that Monday through sun, or Saturday space, plug it in. Listen to him. Listen to how he preaches the word of God. Be fed. But what we do here on Sundays and what this movement is doing is for this context, for this culture in York County, and what works in Texas and what works in Redding, California, may not be how God is moving here in York, Pennsylvania. Can I get an amen? We have to understand that. They're resources. They're preaching the same word, but we have to understand culturally it's different here. And so we can't say, well, that's how that church works. It's just not really fair, and it's a distraction that we don't need. So what ends up happening, right, we go through, we, we watch these different churches, these superstar pastors, and we say, well, that's how it has to be done. And then what happens is we, we spend more time in this context on a Sunday morning or when we're in small groups, and we sit there and we analyze. And we become spectators, and we don't even participate in what's happening. You know, one of the most amazing things that has happened over the years is the number of people that have hot takes, right? ESPN has it all the time. I mean, it literally is called First Take is the one show that they have. And Stephen A. Smith gets paid like $12 million a year to spout off his hottest takes about what his opinion is. It's all about analyzing, right? Analysts on CBS, like I think about football season, I'm a big football fan, or anything. They analyze every little thing. I mean, they have gotten so scientific with, with like sports now and telemetry. I mean, we're analyzing 
every little thing. And in the midst of that, while we're analyzing, we actually miss the football game. So while we're sitting here in our seats and we're analyzing and we're spectators and we're trying to see, oh, I don't know, um, let me look, Chandler didn't do that, um, this person didn't do that, um, COD doesn't do that. Well, that, that's not what God wants you to be doing. He says, I have a word for you. I want you to listen. I want you to understand how I want you to become a part of this. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when that starts happening, when we come and we become spectators, we don't participate, we get totally distracted from what God's doing here. And then we say to, we say to one another, or we'll say to our pastors, or, we'll, or you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just be frustrated. We sit there in frustration, and we just say, I don't even know what we're doing here. Well, of course, you need to jump in with both feet. Take a chance. See what happens. Second thing in the church, second point, is we become content in our prior accomplishments. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is for you, Norma. Norma told me last week, why don't we ever preach out of Revelation? I said, next, I, think, I was like, the Lord has something for next week. Just wait, be patient. <laughs> he said, Jesus is saying this to John and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> the number one thing that sticks out as soon as you write that, or as soon as you read that, is Jesus saying, and I, I, don't even, I don't even know how I would react if like, Jesus just like walked up to me right now. It's not that he can't, but he's choosing not to. But he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Like the, the, that, would, that would just probably hurt. And so I don't think that Jesus just chose those words, gave them to John and said, hey, I'm saying this lightly. I think he was saying it lovingly, but I think he was saying it with his authority. And what you have to understand about this place called Sardis, it was once the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And it was this massive fortress that was surrounded by cliffs, and on the cliffs was like treacherous, loose rock. So if you were trying to come down off the cliffs, you would probably fall to your death. But when people spoke the name Sardis in the area, it was synonymous with the word wealth. So if you said to anybody about Sardis, like the surrounding regions, they would think wealth. Man, that place is wealthy. They are hopping. You know, they were a, a, like a commercial 
highway that would run through there, and they were just a place of wealth. And one of the other reasons for their wealth was, was that they had a stream that ran right through the middle, and it provided gold deposits for them to mine. Sardis was like that cool kid in high school that like everybody wanted to be like. You wanted, to be, you wanted to try to be their friend. You wanted to try to emulate them. Like, they had it going on. They got, you know, for guys, it was the guy that got all the, all the girls to go out with him. I mean, that, that was Sardis. They were, they were alive. They were happening. They were the shiny thing. But unfortunately, the great city fell. Uh, King Cyrus besieged it. And, and it's... it's it's amazing, and yet it is, it is so much a, a God story because the way that they took over the, the city was they, they did, you know, come down the cliffs. But they, the, the city was so well fortified that they found a secret passageway. They found an opening to infiltrate and take over the city. And it made me think about the church. You know, sometimes you can think, hey, we got the walls all around it. But if one person is leaving that door open, Satan can come in and start to begin the work of division. Some secret passageway, somebody not protecting themselves, somebody sitting in anger and letting the sun go down and allowing a foothold in their life. See, this is, this is church. This is church where community matters. What you're doing in your life affects me. It affects what happens here. The other thing that I thought was interesting is there was this stream that ran right down through the middle. And it just made me think about our lives, our hearts, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. When that stream of living water is flowing through our lives, it makes gold deposits in our heart. It tells us about who Jesus is and encourages us and builds us up. And we go through the process of sanctification. Because there were so many, like if you think about this, it's the only place in the Bible that you hear about Sardis divine reasoning for Jesus putting that place in that place in the Bible. Putting Sardis right there. Because we don't hear about it anywhere else. You will not find it anywhere else in Scripture. He's letting us know. This is the illustration. The bottom line is, though, that, that the church of Sardis rested on their past accomplishments, being that city of wealth. They had this reputation. And currently, after being um, taken over, after it being sieged, there was, nobody talked about Sardis the same way. They weren't talking about Sardis as this wealthy place. They were talking about it as a defeated city, a city that had been taken over. The church of Sardis was resting on their past reputation, their past accomplishments, and had just become a place where they were just going through the motions. I can only imagine, I know, you know, sitting around a bonfire sometimes in the summer, we kind of sit back and we reminisce, and we're like, do you remember that time? Hey, do you remember that time? And I can only imagine the people, the church in Sardis, and the people in Sardis being like, do you remember when we were remembered that way? Do you remember when they thought we were awesome? And sometimes what happens is we do something really great here in the church. We'll do an outreach We'll see God move, and we're walking around, and we're high-fiving each other, and 
a year or two years later go by, and we're still high-fiving about the thing that happened two years ago. And we're, we're resting our who we are and what God is doing on something that happened two years ago. We're resting ourselves on a reputation from way back then. But God isn't a passive God. He never stops working. There's always work to be done. Our men's group studying passivity. Our God is a God of action. There's always something that we can take action in for the Lord. And so we can never just sit by and idly allow ourselves to rest in who we once were. That should speak volumes, especially here, because we were a church from Emmanuel, a Life Point church. I mean, Emmanuel has this great history. Right? Right, Bill? But we can't rest on what happened back then. This is now. Amen? Life Point, we always talk about, when we talk about, you know, the start of Life Point, we talk about it a certain way. But there's something that God wants to do right now. We're a church, we're 1010 now. But what I'm trying to say is, we can't rest on what was. We have to start looking at what is and move forward from there. We need to begin to invite the stream to run right through the middle of this church, the Holy Spirit to come right through here and begin to make gold deposits in here. The third thing and the final thing that I, that I have here is discouragement and frustration. Ooh, if he can... If Satan can discourage us and frustrate us, he is a happy camper. In the book of Ezra, yeah, I know, right? We're breaking out Ezra. It's a good Sunday. When's the last time you were in Ezra in church, right? Ezra's a great book, and it, it's supposed to be read in a way where you read Ezra and Nehemiah together in case you ever want to take a read because it's, Ezra's a failure and Nehemiah's victory. And so that's why you should read it that way. But Ezra uh, uh, 4, 1 through 5 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. That's right. That's how you say it. I checked it out on YouTube. I practiced it four times. Okay? <laughs> and, the heads, and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of king of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, so there's a lot there. Basically what happened was King Cyrus had a dream inspired by the Holy Spirit who said, hey, all these exiles that you have captured, send them back and build my temple. And so Ezra led them back. But what happened was, even though the Holy Spirit had led these people back, when they got there, they ran into uh, a people that were a part of that land. And their, their only goal, and, and this is Satan's only goal in, in your life, when God says he wants you to do something, the only goal that, that he had was um, to frustrate them and to discourage them. I mean, it literally says that um, they wanted to make them fearful, 
They wanted to discourage them, and they wanted to frustrate their purpose. And so if you think about this, God sent them on that mission, right? And if we think about, well, how many, how many went? Well, the Bible says it was 42,360 people in total to rebuild the temple. It sounds like that should not have been a hard task. I know that they, have, they, ha- they didn't have, like, cranes and construction equipment, but I'm just saying it sounds like they had enough help. So it wasn't about not having enough people. But when they got there and they were trying to, to, to build the temple, they came against resistance. And some of the people of God, some of the Israelites that got sent back, they, they started, you know, taking bribes. Oh, yeah. We'll change up that plan for this much money. Started making concessions. Did God really say? Did God really say? That's what, that's what that means. Did God really say? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll concede. The bottom line is that for 23 years, 23 years, they sat in frustration and never finished building the temple. 23 years. Think about that. Like, but <laughs> the only thing, I was praying about this this morning, and the Lord's like, that's the Mount Rose Avenue of the Old Testament. <laughs> okay? I was like, that is, that is perfect. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> 23 years to build the temple. PennDOT's probably commenting on live stream right now. Like, take this off the internet. (laughs) But seriously, please get that fixed. Um. Okay, side note, I probably got four tickets this week going through work zone. I'm just waiting for the mail, for Laura to get in and be like, hey, this came in the mail. I've been awful. I forgot that they're like, you know, every time you go through, they're taking your picture. So we'll have a good testimony about that maybe coming up. <laughs> Bottom line, let me just get back to the topic here. Sometimes we take debate and we go from being a part of the mission to opposing the mission. That's the bottom line here. Sometimes when we're supposed to be a part of the mission and part of the body, we go from being somebody who should be participating and a co-laborer in Christ with us to being one of the frustrators, to being one of the discouragers, to being somebody that's always projecting fear into something because of a personal fear that you might have in your own heart. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. Again, this is his big masking, his cover-up. Jesus said we're people of freedom, and yet he wants to bind us with this, with this fear all the time. Thankfully, God always will finish what he starts. So in spite of their disobedience, their fear, and 23 years of frustration, God sends a man named Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah 4, it says that they were attempting to, to discourage and frustrate the rebuilding of the temple, and that the people, again, that were there had fear in their hearts. <clears throat> Same old uncreative Satan, right? Satan can't create. God is creative. So Satan has one play in his playbook, and he runs it over and over, just in a different way, in different circumstances. So I'm going to send fear. I'm going to frustrate them again. And Nehemiah responds like this in Nehemiah 4.14. 
And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And I've been saying it for four weeks. We've got to remember who the Lord is. We walk every day constantly forgetting who our God is. And Nehemiah, a great leader, sent by God, a prayerful man, if you read the, the earlier parts of the book, stands up in the midst of all this adversity and says, do not fear, remember the Lord. great and awesome. And if you've experienced God in that way in your life, if you've had those memorials set up in your heart about how great and awesome God is, then what it does is it rises, it, it, you, you arise from, from that place of complacency. You arise from the discouragement and the frustration. In the context of the church, you begin to fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Nehemiah was saying, rise up and fight for the thing that God's going to do here. And in the end, in Nehemiah 6, if, you, if we go ahead a little bit, 15 through 16, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. The Israelites were frustrated for 23 years. And Nehemiah, because he remembered who the Lord was, got it done in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, Nehemiah writes, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I love this story. I'm so happy that the Lord allowed me to, to preach it this morning. Fifty-two days. Think about that. Twenty-three years is two-thirds of my life. And in less than two months, they rebuilt the temple. That is bizarre. Like, <laughs> that is insane. All because of obedience to, to, to God. All because they said, we believe in who our God says he is. It was that simple. We make it so hard and yet it's so simple. I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. But my, my kind of final takeaway, my encouragement today for this. You know what? I, I want to I read something that the Lord put on my heart. Um, do, every, do any of you guys ever do like spiritual walks? Like just like walk, kind of talk to God, get out of the house? Yeah, okay. Yeah, sometimes I just, so last weekend, as I was prepping for last weekend's message, um, I told Laura, I was like, hey, I'm just going to go take a walk around the neighborhood. 
you know, I had my, my big headphones on. <laughs> People were probably like, what is this guy doing? Whatever. Um, and, I, and I was just praying to God about, about the, the series, about 4-10-10, for God's leading, all these different, you know, all these different things. I'm just walking, I'm praying, and, and, and the Holy Spirit just began to, to say some things to me. So I just want to read them to you. And take them, if you, if you can receive them, take them. And, and if you can't, that's okay. Um, but I'm just going to share them. Number one thing that God told me is, the point of doing all this isn't to add people to our church to be viewed as successful by metrics of the world, but to go out into the community and usher the broken and hurt into freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's number one. second thing that God told me was that the great cover-up is that most of us think that the church is for us, but the reality is that the purpose of the church is to tell the world about the glory of God. We are saved for his namesake. Anybody receiving this? All right. And the final one was, as I was praying, as Pastor Dave is on sabbatical, When, when a pastor says he's going on sabbatical and he says, I have things I need to work on, when that comes across, immediately what happens is worry, fear, what's going to happen? I mean, what is going to happen? You know, like, I've heard that so many times um, when, when everybody kind of started finding out. And the Lord, as I was praying about this, Lord, I, this, like, I need you to help me here. I need you to help me to be able to encourage people in that. And the Lord said this. We are not going to just merely survive the next 10 plus weeks. Do you know why? Because the head of this church is Christ. And in Christ, we don't just merely survive, but we thrive and we grow and we step up in our giftings. We get untangled from these lies and these hurts and these pains and and all this garbage that we've been talking about. When all that happens and the body is functioning with Christ as the head, we don't follow man, we follow Christ. We lose sight of that because we become ultra-dependent on the approval of one person. Christ is the head. When we sit in these places, allowing petty distractions to cloud our view, when we feel like we're content, you know, the Lord's done good things, we're making good progress, I just feel really content um, when we start you know, having those conversations. Do you remember when? When, we, when you have the remember when and you can't remember what's happening now, that's when you should do like a self-check. And finally, when you feel discouraged and frustrated uh, about progress um, or you hear outsiders saying things that is frustrating you, take a moment and remember that all of these are, are, like Paul said, out of the flesh. Out of the flesh. God never designed you, and he never wants you to feel um, distracted. He wants you to be super focused on the mission. 
God never um, wants you to be content. He's not a passive God. He is always at work. He is always moving. We are always um, finding opportunities to be co-laborers in Christ. When you feel discouraged and frustrated, you have to know that Christ gave you freedom. Frustration and anger, discouragement, puts you in a place of almost like bondage, depression. Like those types of things are not from God. And in those moments, you have to remember that Christ is the head. We can't become ineffective as the church. We have to refix our positioning on Christ. It says this in uh, Matthew um, 16, 18 through 19. It's one of, one of my favorite uh, verses. It's like, a, it's like Jesus being a cheerleader for us. He says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when you're feeling all those emotions, when you're feeling the things we've talked about, when Satan comes knocking at the door and tries to knock you off track, Jesus said, the gates of hell hell shall not prevail, and you have the power and authority to bind those things on heaven. And because we are in Christ, we can bind them in heaven or on earth, and it will be bound in heaven as well. It doesn't, you don't have to continue to walk in that. You have a choice to make. It's a choice that we make to leave that, to do something about it. Don't become ineffective as the church. Don't become ineffective as the church. Jesus in Revelation is saying to the church, wake up. He's saying, alert, alert. It's like, think nuclear alarm going off. He's saying to the church in Sardis, remember, remember your God. Wake up, remember your God. Finally, I want to read Colossians 1, 18 through 20. I'm going to drive home this point that Jesus is the head. It says in Colossians 1, 18 through 20, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So this morning, we're, we're actually going to take some time um, observing National Day of Prayer. We're going to pray together. Um, and as we're, as we're entering into prayer, um, you have several ways that you can be responding to whatever the Lord has laid on your heart. Maybe there's something in this uh, that the Lord specifically said, maybe you ha- you realize that there's uh, something that you need to repent from. Like maybe you've been walking a certain way and the Lord's saying, hey, veer towards me. Re- repentance is a beautiful thing. In my, in my experience at church, when I heard repentance, I was like, oh no, someone's slapping me on the hand. No, it, you're turning towards the right way. You're turning towards God. Thank God for his grace because his grace doesn't only forgive, it gives you the power to turn and repent. So maybe that's something that you need to be doing. 
Second thing you maybe need to be doing is if you find yourself being somebody who's fallen into one of those categories, if you felt discouraged and frustrated, if you've become a spectator instead of being a participator in what the Lord is doing, take the time and say, you know, Lord, I give that to you. You can have it. Corey, you can come on up. Um, you can, you take it, Lord. You can have it. Your word says that you've given us all authority on heaven and earth, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. So we're going to bind this stuff. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to walk out of here in freedom. Maybe a third thing that you might need to do is say, hey, you know, I've put my trust in man too much. I've trusted men, man, too much. And I haven't really looked at what's going on here as Christ being the head. Listen, if you don't know what's going on in our church, that's a personal problem. We said this the other night. If, 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 you, know, if you know the vision of 1010, that's awesome. But if you've been going here and you don't understand what we're trying to accomplish, that's saying something completely different. How would you not know? Maybe you need to go before God and say, God, I've been complacent. I've just been kind of riding along, watching, making opinions in my head, and then leaving here, not making any changes in my heart, not really contributing, not really, you know, seeing how I can invest in the mission of 1010. And then we want to observe the National Day of Prayer. And one of the things that the Lord has definitely laid on my heart is he wants this place to become a house of prayer. We know what church looks like, right? In Acts, the early church devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. We know what it looks like. We know what it looks like when it's going good. And so we want to become a house of prayer. So we're going to take time this morning and we're going to go before the Lord. We're going to pray for some personal things, some personal convictions, but we want to pray for our nation as this coronavirus thing is happening worldwide. We want to pray for those who are ill, who are sick. We want to pray for the immunocompromised. We want to pray for our leaders. We want to pray, and and this isn't a political statement. This is in, in agreement with the word of God that we are to pray for our leaders, okay? We want to pray for our president, Donald Trump. We want to pray for our governor, Tom Wolf. We want to pray for our local officials, Mayor uh, Michael Helfich. We have York County Representative Scott Perry, and there's many others, but those are the ones that I kind of was able to, to collect. There are more, but we want to pray. It doesn't matter. Jesus is not political. I'm just, he is sovereign, and he knew that those people would be in office. We have a choice whether or not we're going to pray for him and ask God's guidance and wisdom through this time. So if you all want to stand, Mike, maybe uh, you can turn off the light there. We're just going to enter into prayer. Sorry, guys. (laughs) So take some time, do some work, And then I'll come back up and we'll just kind of go through the...
the uh, national day of prayer. We'll pray for our country. We'll pray for our leaders. But take maybe like five minutes here and just really ask the Lord to investigate your heart, to do something in your heart, to begin the work of transformation, to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to sanctify you in some of these areas. And then I'll come back up and we'll pray for our nation and we'll pray for our leaders um, and we'll go from there. And guys, I just want to let you know that I love you all very much. I know I say that, but I love you guys. I pray for you guys. I, I carry a burden for you guys. And I want nothing more than to see you um, experience and know the fullness of God. Moving in. 